Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, overplayed by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Her father, her family, and her friends all miss her, and they think about her every day. She is Maura Murray, a Hanson native, and 12 years ago today she disappeared just moments after a car crash on Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. Today in New Hampshire, they will remember Mara and keep her name in the light. Joining me now live on the South Shore's Midday Report, we have Fred Murray, the father of Mara. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, hello, Christine. Uh, thanks for offering. And, you know, it's, I know it's been a long journey. You and I have spoken over the years uh, at times and, and immediately after Mora's disappearance as well. And today there's a special ceremony to keep Mora's name in the light. What are you going to do and what exactly does that mean? Well, uh, what we're trying to do is put together an appeal uh, to get the FBI to enter the case because after 12 years, without the FBI, this isn't going anywhere and it will just dry up and blow away. So um, uh, somebody representing me up there at uh, the scene of the accident is reading uh, about four statements, four brief statements, uh, making four points to the public that I we hope gets out and uh, would be compelling reasons for people to sign a petition to um, ask the FBI to please enter the case. I've been asking for them since day one, but... Uh, this New Hampshire State Police, I'm going to call the police on themselves. So they uh, they have to invite the FBI in, and they won't. So uh, a public appeal is all that's left to me. Now, I know you have an online petition right now. That's on change.org? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And I know that I've heard from your private investigator that people have actually been making comments on that website, and that's proving to be helpful to let people know that this is still very important to many people about finding more of. Yes, but, but uh, you know we want to we want to present reasons why uh, why we want the FBI in, such as a state police officer being at the scene of the accident on Monday night, but yet on Wednesday morning, when I got there, I heard about the accident Tuesday. The director of the state police said Wednesday was the first they heard of it. Now, how can that be when they had their own officer at the scene? You know, only <laughs> they're not talking. The officer isn't talking. There's no report. Only FBI can make them talk. And I know that there were uh, some other things that also didn't make sense uh, that you folks yes. have discovered over the years. Yes, uh, we have a witness that says um, there was. She went by the, uh, the accident scene before the official responder Cecil Smith uh, showed up in a in a sedan in the middle of two. This witness saw in um, an SUV number 001, police 001, not favorable there at um, well, about 10 minutes before the uh, other officer arrived. 
And another witness heard police, two police, uh, policemen arguing about jurisdiction at the accident scene. So who were these? Were these the, the, uh, the state police officer and the, the driver of uh, Haverhill 001? And there's no record of this anywhere. The official record states that uh, 002 um, at 746 um, was was the first uh, police officer there, but it doesn't seem to get two people saying that's not true. Only the FBI can can, can make these uh, these um, the local police um, <laughs> go back and review that, and uh, let's get a look at it. It's it's um, there's one other thing too. There's three different. Um, dispatch reports, official dispatch reports, and how can there be three different official uh, uh, versions of the same event? And nobody's offering any explanations up there. That's they're on mute, and they're going to remain there until somebody makes them talk. And the only one that can make the uh, the local police talk are the FBI. No, you know it, it seems. To, go ahead. I'm sorry, and and what is the FBI saying to you when you've made your plea? Please get involved. Please take over this investigation. Well, they have to they have to be invited um, by the state police, but that isn't going to happen. So it's it's it's, it's as if <clears throat> we're being held hostage by the local blue Bur- blue brotherhood. Nobody no. will talk. Nobody will talk. Who can intervene? Can can the governor of New Hampshire intervene? Is there some other, or is there a, can a New Hampshire uh, senator intervene? Is there any other route to go? I don't think so because I've personally appealed to two different New Hampshire governors, and they both uh, just put me off and promise make promises, but never never do anything about it. You know, so uh, I don't I don't see anything but a direct public appeal. You know, there's, it was, I, I'm reminded of, um, oh, a, a, a Roman statesman uh, philosopher named Juvenal around the year 100 A.D. He asked a question for the ages. Who is to guard the gods themselves? That's the issue here. <laughs> We've got unexplained police activity at the scene. They're not talking, and the only one that can make them talk and try to bring us closer and give us an accurate look at what happened that night for a timeline is the FBI. So that's there's where we are. And is there anything else that you'd like to add uh, in a remembrance or a comment about Mora today? Because I'm going to put this whole interview up online, too, so people can access it. Well, you know, every, every person that ever drew a breath on this planet knows exactly how I feel. I'm with uh, a couple members of my family now. Um, be, uh, it's, it's not a good day, you know, uh, there's nothing you can do when it's not going away. And it's, uh, you know, if <laughs> she was our buddy and we want her back and we, we can't stop, <laughs> there's, there's no way in the hot place that I can, I can stop looking for my daughter. So I am never going to stop. Well, we, we appreciate you uh, calling uh, calling us and sharing this with you. A lot of people on the South Shore knew, knew your daughter, and they knew of her, and uh, she was a beautiful, talented girl. And as I said, we're going to have this interview up on our website so people can access it and listen uh, to your request, and maybe you'll get some more traction uh, on your 
uh, quest to get the FBI to take over this investigation. And uh, Fred Murray, the father of Maura Murray, who disappeared 12 years ago today, please keep in touch with us and let us know how it's going because I know many people here on the South Shore want to know what happened to Maura and what's happening now. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Christine, for staying with us for 12 years. I, I appreciate it when you could know. Very, you're very welcome. Thank you so much, Fred Murray. We'll talk Bye. again. Bye, Christine. Bye. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more news right after this. Pretty intense words from Fred Murray. What do you think, Lance? Obviously a very emotional day for him and his family. It's the 12-year anniversary of Mora, Mora's disappearance. Uh, interviews with Fred kind of go in the, in the same direction because, um, uh, you know, it's just where they're at. It's where they're at with the information that they have. And honestly, the people who are interviewing him just probably get like the Wikipedia version and, and go into it. Uh, I'm just kind of, you know. Just kind of guessing on that, but I don't think that the people interviewing uh, Fred or any of the family members have the full scope of of uh, of everything that's uh, that's gone into this case or everything that this case uh, has to it. I do agree, Lance. Um, however, Christine James from ninety five point nine FM WATD, the South Shores radio station, uh, who gave us permission to use that clip. She has been speaking with Fred Murray over the years, and uh, this is not the first report she's done on him. So I think she she knows more than most people. But yeah, I do agree in general. And you can hear his frustration just come out in his voice, and it's sad. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's, it's exasperation. It's very hard to listen to. But I do love how poetic Fred is and... You know, I, I love when he said, there's no way in the hot place that I can stop looking for my daughter. I just have never heard anyone refer to hell as the hot place, um, but it makes pretty good sense. And some of his words I just thought were uh, were pretty interesting and interesting choices. And uh, I haven't re-listened to that Fred's Letters episode, but I would probably look at those letters in a different way now after hearing from Fred a little bit more and understanding how he speaks. Oh, exactly. Very much the way he the way he speaks, the way he writes, and the way he speaks are very much one and the same. You know, if he's going with a thought, he's he's going to go with the thought, and uh, yeah, you know, you get that like that that poetic uh, ring to it. He's got that quality about him. Uh, South Shore, Massachusetts accent going, and and he starts referencing Roman philosophers. It's real, and I want to I want to stress that when when you hear him speak, you can almost hear. If you're from around here, you can almost hear your own father. You know, you can you can picture your own father saying these things. The quote that he gave was pretty fantastic. Uh, and it's the same quote that John Smith get, gave in his presentation, I guess, um, is the right word, on February 9th up in Haverhill. For who is to guard the guards themselves? I just think that's pretty strong. Uh, coming from Fred Murray, I, it's the first time, to my knowledge, that I've heard of him really sort of question the police uh, that directly. It seems like he's at his rope's end right there. You know, he's kind of got this, like, you kind of hear it in his voice, this fuck it attitude. And Fred isn't saying, um, you know, the police killed Mora. He's just saying they have not done a good job. 
Yeah. And they have to take responsibility for that and look at the case that they've botched. And you know what? It's been 12 years, and it's uh, not only is it not going away, but it's it's only gaining momentum. So there's got to be some uh, some 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 fix that th- that happens here on the side of law enforcement if it is the case that they are covering up for a botched investigation. If it is that simple, then it's time for certain players to own up, and perhaps that'll lead to some sort of uh, solution with the case. But yeah, it's it's about time. Also, what I like to hear in Fred's statements there is the strong push to petition the FBI to get involved, which is something that, depending on who you ask, has been um, demanded since uh, very, very early on in the investigation. And some people have kind of theorized if Fred was involved with his daughter's disappearance, if he helped her run away... Why is he petitioning the FBI so hard? Isn't wouldn't that be um, wouldn't that be kind of against the plan? Unless he understands that the FBI cannot possibly get involved unless some sort of contradictory evidence or statements. They need just cause to get involved, no matter how many signatures you can put on a petition. So maybe he's playing it that way. I don't see any way that Fred knows where Mora is and is pushing this hard for the FBI petition. It would be psychotic reverse psychology. Yeah, it would. Um, and I know that that, that uh, has come up a little bit online. And I guess at this point, everything, we should expect everything to come up. It shouldn't be that surprising, but it, it kind of is. But it seems to be common sense to me that there's just no way he would invite the FBI in and push for it on WATD and, you know, with John and, you know, knowing that we've been talking about it on this podcast as well. Yeah, that was a very, really good way to put it, reverse psychotic reverse psychology. Yeah, and I mean, why would, after 12 years of a pretty perfect plan under some pretty heavy magnifying glass scrutiny. You're going to, you're going to put your head out there that, that close to getting caught by saying, Hey everybody, let's get the FBI involved. Like you're that arrogant about, (laughs) I mean, it's silly. (laughs) It really is. You just, you, you would, you would just go away. You know, you wouldn't talk to anybody. You wouldn't do any interviews. It's like the Kaiser Soze of the, uh, (laughs) of Haverhill, New Hampshire. And it's not like Fred Murray is the the mayor of Hanson, Mass, and he's got to keep up face. Like, what is what does he care 12 years later if he does know where she is? Why would he be keeping up this public front for all these years? And really, like, if you don't, if you think that and then you listen to, to, to all of this, I mean, you'll start laughing, too. You'll, you'll realize, like, that is an absolutely crazy, it's a completely crazy person then. <laughs> a whole crazy family. I'm not ready to... to I'm not ready to categorize them like that. No, no, I don't think I would at any point uh, either. Um, actually, and, and some of the stories that come out of the the Lodge on the 9th about Fred were really pretty great stories about a uh, a man who wears his heart on his sleeve and is quite literally up to his knees in the brush. Uh, searching for his daughter. Yeah, because people can hear the stories and then they can say, you know, they can hear us telling the stories and then they can say, well, anybody can just make up something about about Fred, you know, going through the brush or, and, and, or, uh, or you know, 
lifting, you know, getting getting teared up because, you know, they think that there's a possibility that they might find his daughter. Well, you know, someone could make up that story, right? But as as surreal and bizarre and, you know, we we said, you know, there's like a like a a shadow that's cast up there. There are really genuine people up there and we saw and you'll hear this when we play the uh these clips. When they're genuine up there, they're fucking genuine. And you there's the 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 people who spoke the guy who spoke of of Fred like there's no reason for that you once you hear his voice and you see his face there's no reason for that guy to lie to show up at this and and make up some story the, these these are not people who want or need their name or face out there yeah it would have to be some kind of truman show level conspiracy uh to fool people it doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't make any sense. Exactly. When you say Truman Show level, you mean these people are all in on it. Yeah. And and they got – I mean the guy who talked about Fred going through the woods with the tarp, like that's a great character actor then, you know? Like <laughs> if we're talking that level, then they've they've done an extraordinary job casting. So this is our anniversary edition of the Missing More Amari podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Tim, joined here with Lance and we just wanted to start with Fred's words because we thought it was so strong. And uh, we do want to talk today a little bit about the anniversary. We were up in New Hampshire, in Haverhill, New Hampshire, on February 9th, just uh, last week. And we filmed a lot of interesting stuff for the documentary and gathered some pretty interesting audio for this podcast. Uh, how do you feel that it went, Lance? Well, you and I have talked about this, and the first impression that you get is that it's an incredibly surreal experience when you're at the accident site and John Smith is talking to a group of people uh, from the area. The Haverhill Police Department actually volunteered to put police cars and officers about 50 yards on either side of the accident scene so that they could control traffic and keep everybody safe. Um which was uh, which was a nice gesture on their part. Uh, surreal. It, it. I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but I wanted to laugh a few times because of the bizarreness of the whole thing. Just thinking about where we were, and you know this this lodge that we were in, uh, listening to John talk to a scattering of people. A decade and two years later. And just thinking about how this all started when, you know, when we started looking into the case and then how surreal and, and bizarre it was to be in that, that situation uh, last week. What about you? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a little bit surreal. And listening to some of the audio from the lodge on the 9th, some of the audio just takes me aback in a way that is, is very hard to describe. It's sort of like a town hall meeting where everybody knows a lot about the case and everybody is just talking about the case and John Smith is leading this discussion and it is surreal is a really good word. And I'm like looking at the video as well um, and it's just a strange combination of things that we've heard for years and actually being right there and hearing it with your own ears and seeing it with your own eyes. 
it's always it's always weird being in Haverhill. I don't have much to add to that. I totally agree. There's always this weird element in every town that's up there, this bizarreness that's kind of just over it. And that is in no disrespect to some of the locals that we met, very nice people up there. Um, the area seems really nice and, and quiet, I would say, for the most part. Um, but then, you know, when you dig as deep as we have, you hear all these rumors about all these people and these things that may or may not have happened and some things that we know that did happen in the area. You know, it's it casts sort of a, a dark shadow on it uh, in some kind of realm. I don't know. Does that make sense? Well, especially when we go out after and we grab some food and every car that pulls in, you know, I don't know about you, but every car that pulled in as we're sitting there talking and eating our food, I'm looking out the window and I'm looking at these guys walking in and I'm just wondering, is that somebody who might have followed us? Just because it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me if there was something, you know, you just feel like every time you're up there, you just, you're always kind of like got the eyes in the back of your head going. get to the accident site on 112 by the weathered barn like i said before the haverhill police department had a couple of uh detail police officers making sure that uh, the traffic was controlled in that area the weathered barn was taped off so we weren't allowed to park there um we weren't allowed to park uh anywhere near um the Westman's house. So there was a line of cars. They were going down old Peter's road and, um, we parked on the side of the street and, uh, set up our equipment and, um, John Smith was ready to go. This was, uh, this was a, uh, a moment for John that I think he had been waiting for. And I don't mean to say this in a, uh, in a way where he's like looking for the limelight, but this is a moment where he really wanted his voice to be heard. He saw this as a moment for his voice to be heard. And we've got some video to go along with this, um, but not on your iTunes feed. But if you are interested in seeing this moment in video, you can check it out on our YouTube page, youtube.com slash missing Maura Murray. We'll play a little bit of video alongside with this episode. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank everyone for coming today that's here. And I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot more people at the lodge uh, and we'll be able to discuss a lot more. Uh, But at this time, I just want everyone to know that none of the Murrays could be here today, unfortunately, because of work and all that stuff. Uh, But we all know that they're here in spirit for sure. And we know that Maura definitely appreciates everything that we're doing for her, okay? And that is the big thing, is keeping Maura in the light and keeping a positive thought going for her return one way or another, okay? I have a small statement that I want to read uh, that I wrote this morning, and it's basically uh, just something that I came up with in just a couple minutes, and... I'll just read it now. Um, I'd like to thank you all for being here today to show your support for Murray, for Mora and the Murray family. Please know how much the family and friends appreciate this support and that even after 12 years, people still care enough to be here today. 12 years ago today, Mora vanished from this very spot on a cold, dark night. She has not been seen or heard from since. 
The Murrays, along with friends and lots of volunteers, have kept Moore's case in the light for all these years and will continue to do so until answers come forth that resolve this. Please keep Mora, the family, and friends in your thoughts and prayers. And we would like to bless you all for being here today. It is a great, great day for Maura Murray. It's a great day for us. And I'd like to adjourn now. This has been very quick. That's what I wanted it to be. Let's adjourn now to the lodge. Go have some coffee, some donuts, some snacks, and talk about Mora. So after about only a couple minutes outside, we uh, hopped back in the car and went over to the Mountain Lakes Lodge up the road, probably about a half a mile from the accident site, I would say. And it's uh, west, and then it's to the left, and a little bit of a windy road. And actually, you drive right past the A-frame house um, as you take a left to go into the driveway of the Mountain Lakes Lodge. And it's a really nice building. Um, very nice room, and it is. It was the base of operations for for where some of the searches had taken place. Some of these people who were there on the ninth here in 2016 were there back in 2006 and earlier. So we set up our cameras, and we asked John to just give us a nod, and uh, so we can start rolling and everything. And he just uh, got a little too anxious, and I think he just he just started going. So we actually don't have uh, a beginning necessarily, um, but that we're not going to play the entire thing in this episode anyway. We're going to play chunks, um, but it just goes to show how. Uh, how exciting of a day and exciting is kind of a weird word to use, but you know, it was, it was an exciting day. Yeah, it was. And, uh, I just want to, I, I kind of forgot about that moment where, um, <clears throat> this was definitely, uh, the, the John Smith show and one of our, uh, one of our camera guys just wanted to go out and have a quick smoke. And he came up and said, all right, do I have five minutes to do this? And I said, yeah, you know, five minutes will start. And I went over to John and I said, okay, are you good to go in five minutes? And he said, yes. And I think he just heard good to go. And uh, the next thing we know, he's, he's, he's gone into it. He's, he's started and he's, he's taken center stage. And um, so that is why we do apologize. There's no official beginning to this, but he, he just started rolling with it. And we kind of uh, had about 20 seconds worth of um, making sure everything was on and uh, recording. And John Smith really, uh, I, I don't want to make it seem like we're taking anything away from him. He has a really commanding presence up there and uh, really did an amazing presentation. I was kind of uh, taken aback just at the energy that he brought. He spoke for about an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and 20 minutes. It was longer than that. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was, it was like an hour and forty-five minutes, and yeah, it's pretty. And he intense. had a gun too, so I'm pretty, <laughs> uh, pretty sure no one was going anywhere. <laughs> I didn't write any books on theater and how to demand attention from the audience and have a and have a presence on stage, but I'm pretty sure a gun on your hip is a is a is a convincer. And with that, we're going to play our first clip from John's presentation on the ninth. And in the next days after that, you will notice that the snowbanks, per WMUR videos, were not damaged. 
Okay, the only damaged snowbank was in front of the Westmans on their side, and that's from Dick Guy, one of the EMT guys himself. So if there was no damage on the tree side of the road where she supposedly hit these trees, what really happened at the corner? And that's what we're here today to try and discuss. This is what I have been working on for a long time. I've been pushing this issue for 11 and a half years, that whatever happened at the corner was either staged or something very bad happened at that corner and no one wants anyone to know about it. And as you can see by some of the diagrams that I put out here, the timing just does not make any sense as well. And the biggest thing that we have going for us is, unfortunately, I can only tell you who that witness A I cannot tell you her name right now because she has not come out. She's not come forward yet, but she was supposed to be here today. Unfortunately, she's not. And the reason for that is because she's scared. We did hear from Witness A actually on the 9th, but after we had left Haverhill. So uh, we do hope to meet her soon and have her on the show. Yeah, and I know that she wants to tread lightly in the whole situation, the whole what she saw, because she is from the area and it is a it is a hot topic up there and uh it's understandable and on the next clip that we chose john smith is talking about what fred was given in the freedom of information act um what he was given by the police and john is curious about why some things are not in there and the explanation is just not coming from the police we have had nothing but silence from them pretty much for 12 years Fred received Freedom of Information Act paperwork, and that is what he got. Now, another thing that's missing from the Freedom of Information Act and that they would not release is the Hanover Lebanon Sheriff's Report in conjunction with Moore's case. So did something happen in Hanover or Lebanon that involves Moore's car? And that's why it's not released. There has to be something in those reports if they won't release them. So she was coming up 91 if she left Amherst. More than likely she could have stopped in Hanover or Lebanon for gas. Because that's about right for what she might have had left for gas in her car, which is just above three quarters of a tank. So did something happen in Lebanon? And that's why they're not releasing the reports. Another question. That's another question that we have. Wasn't it true that the dispatch went through Hanover too? Yes, and, that, and that's, a, that's the interesting part, is that when Butch Atwood tried to call 911, all lines were busy. Wow, Monday night in Haverhill's a busy night, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so all lines were busy, and their, their 911 call was transferred through Hanover, and Hanover in turn called back Grafton County Sheriff's Department, and Grafton County Sheriff's Department in turn called the Atwoods to find out what was going on. And pretty much Atwood said, you know, when uh, the wife talked to 911 that Butch had seen, gone by the accident scene, seen a girl at the scene, and pretty much said, you know, they don't know anymore. You know, we don't know where the girl is. That was pretty much what they said. So I think that this is a good spot to talk about Butch Atwood and that 911 call because 
we haven't been deliberately vague on on this. Uh, actually, I don't think we've been vague at all. I think we've actually come out and said that, um, and we've we've looked at the dispatch log and said that uh, it was his common law wife that called. And I and I want to clear up any misconception that might be out there right now because there was a misconception, and in, in at least my head, um, that he had told his wife about the accident. She called. There's um, that's 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 actually not true. Um, there is an article from the Caledonian Record, which I believe is uh, dated February 20th of 2004, so uh, 11 days after. And the uh, headline of the article is, Area Man Laments the Events of February 9th. It, it, it goes on to say that Butch Atwood just wishes that the events of that night had gone differently for, uh, for, for Mora, um, how he maybe should have convinced her more to to get into his bus so that she uh would be safe today um what is revealing in this article is that he tells and this is again 10 11 days later this article is released um so this is like fresh memory this is fresh memory from from butch atwood uh at least according to this article um, he said she looked to be about 20 years old, had dark hair. Atwood said the Saturn's lights weren't on. I shined the light in her car, said, are you okay? She said she was. I saw no blood. She was cold and shivering. I told her I was going to call the police. She says no, not to call. She had already called AAA. And then this is him quoting. I said, okay, I will make a call to the police department and the fire department to check you out. He said... Why don't you come to my house? You can get warm and wait for the police and EMS. Atwood said she just told him to go. Said he drove to his house about 75 yards from the scene of the accident, backed into his driveway before, according to the Caledonian record, before running into the house to call the police. Said he couldn't get through to the Haverhill Police Department and the Grafton County Sheriff's Department. He called 911 and the operator couldn't either. Atwood said another 911 operator wasn't able to get through. Further goes on to say while he was talking on the phone on his front porch, Atwood could see the road but not Murray's disabled car. He saw several vehicles drive by but couldn't tell any makes or models because it was so dark. After about seven to nine minutes, he looked out and saw the Haverhill police. So this is a pretty uh, interesting time frame that this article puts on it. Um, it goes on to say to say more, but that at least clears up whether he called or his wife called. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions. But the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, Honor the grit of those searching for justice and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening.
sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. And here is a clip of John Smith talking about his beliefs with the Haverhill Police Department. I want people to think, you know, I'm not just out here running my mouth after 12 years. I've been looking at this for a long time. Things have been coming to me for a long time. We still receive information to this day. And because of the recent activity by Tim and Lance with the podcast, the blogs that are out there, we have created a good venue for people to talk and come forward. And it's amazing how much information we've actually received from locals who know what's going on around here. They know there's corruption. And I'm not saying, okay, let me just make this perfectly clear right now. I am not saying that the Haverhill police were involved. Okay, I'm not saying that. But everything points to the fact that they're lying about stuff, okay? They're, they're making stuff up because it fits them. It fits their scenario that they want you to believe. Now, I know it's no secret that John Smith, one of his theories is that the Haverhill Police Department and law enforcement in general in that area might be covering up something. Again, we say this all the time. He's not directly implicating them in any crime. And as he, he says, he, he you know, it's funny, he kind of, tries to cover his ass there by saying, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that it was a corrupt police department, but they're lying, you know? So he, he tries to cover his ass. He, um, he's, he's got, uh, he comes at him hard right there. And it's, uh, um, again, it's a, a lot of it might come from frustration. Like what we said, exasperation, like we said with, uh, with Fred. 
you know, you're just kind of exasperated. If you're not covering up a crime, then you're covering up a, a botched investigation. So why not just like try to make some progress here? Here is John Smith talking a little bit more about the rag in the tailpipe and about the officer's um, behavior on that night. One thing that's interesting to me about this clip is it's the first time that the audience uh, begins to interact. Yeah, John starts to get some laughs. The room starts to loosen up a little bit, and uh, and the laughs do make it seem strange. I, I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah, it does. Let's uh, let's let's play it, and we'll uh, we'll 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 talk about our feelings on that. To me, they were inserting information that they wanted you to know for a reason. Everybody suspected that it could have been a suicide attempt. I don't know how many people have tried to commit suicide by stuffing a rag in your tailpipe, but I never have, but it doesn't work. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the people go on and on and on that, you know, when she crashed her car, she stuffed the rag in the tailpipe to try to commit suicide there at the scene. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's really stretching it now because, you know, you got the house right there. So uh, these are the things that point towards some type um, I, you know, I, I don't know what more to call it. Aversion. Than, than, what's that? To avert something, to avert. To avert yeah, to, to push to your mind up. in another direction. You know, and why? Why would you have to do that unless you wanted to take away from what actually happened at the corner that night? So at first listen, it's as if people laugh because maybe they're so far removed time-wise with this that it doesn't seem like a real story anymore. And you have this character of John talking about it and the, and the laughs kind of, and the laughs come out because maybe they feel like that's what they think they should do. And then I realized after thinking about it a little bit more, it's just, it, it might just be a nervous laugh just to break things up because John has gone on at this point for probably like a half an hour or so. And this might just be like an icebreaker. Uh, you know, he, he kind of cracks a kind of an off-color joke there. You know, it's a nervous laugh, an icebreaker laugh that the uh, audience has. And right after that, people feel more comfortable in talking. Yeah. So it is bizarre to hear it, but I wouldn't take it any further than, um, you know, get that get that one get that one laugh out of the way uh that nervous laugh and then you know people just feel more uh able to contribute at that point like the the whole conversation's been a little bit disarmed at that point yeah and again we mean no disrespect to the locals who were there everyone was very nice um this is just this is from two guys who are from another state it takes us you know a few hours to get there where we don't live there and you know it didn't happen in our backyard so so we just know this from from like a, a, a reaching distance and to hear people laugh about something that, you know, we we've been working on and we take seriously. It's not even like they're laughing about it. It was a, it was just a nervous laugh. But at the time, it, it was it's just bizarre. It just felt surreal and bizarre. The next piece here that we're going to play is a, a pretty uh, tough indictment of the then chief of police, Jeff Williams, by John Smith. Uh, through some of John Smith's sources, he goes into a little bit of detail regarding where Jeff Williams was that night, where he had been, and well, I guess we'll just we'll just play this and, and we'll talk about it after. It's fun when you have people in the community that tell you stuff, because we know that earlier in the day, the sedan 
SUV was being driven by Chief Williams. And Chief Williams drove off the road in that cruiser and got stuck. So Cecil Smith came to the scene and sent Chief Williams away in the SUV. And that was about 4.30 in the afternoon on Monday the 9th. So the last we know, Chief Williams was in that SUV at 4.30 in the afternoon. Okay? And Chief, or uh, Cecil Smith took over in the sedan once it was pulled out. Okay? Why would they do that? Why, why would they send Chief Williams away in another vehicle? Well, because he'd been drinking. And we all know that, you know, and I, I, trust me, I don't want to pick on his issues because I, you know, I know he has problems with, with alcohol, but he's a man who's working for the town. And he's out driving around in your cruiser and he's been drinking. And you got other people who are covering for him. Okay? And I know that happens. It does. You know, it's like family covers for family, you know. And, but the, the fact that, again, you know, this was done just shows you this was done in the middle of the day and this is the stuff that goes on. So what can happen with the stuff that we don't know about? Very strong words from John Smith about Chief at the time, Jeff Williams. Um, yeah, he's not backing off on this at all. Yeah, not only is he not backing off, but he's uh, he's tightening the screws on this one. He's Yeah, John comes really close to... No, he doesn't come really close to it. He, he flat out states that Jeff Williams was drinking and was sent home because he had been drinking. So he's not beating around the bush on this one. And here we have John talking about the two tow companies who were both at the scene the night of Moore's accident. And uh, it's pretty interesting because the town went with Lavoie's. And, of course, we know that the car ended up in Mike Lavoie's personal garage. So this is a little bit of an interesting wrinkle. Yeah, and it's something that we mentioned uh, previously that we didn't really get into uh, too in-depth um, as to who calls who when there's uh, an accident on the side of the road, who makes that decision. So they get into it here a little bit. It's one of those little facts that uh, I don't want to lose sight of. You know, it's it could be absolutely nothing, or it it could be um, it could be something. I just don't want to I don't want to lose sight of something that seems like an oversight or 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 in, insignificant at this time. The night that the accident happened, there are two tow companies that uh, the town uses, and one of those is Lavoie's Auto, and one of those is Northland, Dick McKean. And the night that Moore's accident happened was on Monday, Dick McKean from Northland Towing was supposed to be the one called. He was not. Lavoie's was called. We want to know why that happened. When Lavoie's was at the scene picking up the car, Dick McKean had, had the, heard the call on the radio and actually came to the scene and wanted to know why he didn't get the call and where his money was because he's losing $100. Uh, there's nothing on the report that says, you know, who called Lavoie's. It just shows that they're on scene and they left with the vehicle. So 
We don't know if dispatch called them. I don't know how that works. Right. He usually does. Yeah, usually, usually the, the, the police officer will call dispatch. Dispatch will call whatever towing company they want. Okay. Okay. So more than likely, that's what happened. But so we want to know why they chose Lavoie's instead of Northland. Another question. John raises another good question here. Uh, a uh, a question that that no one really has has seemed to answer so far about uh, why Mike Lavoie got. Morris Carr and why uh, the other tow company did not. My main question on this, though, is I wonder how many times that towing mix-up has happened. Because we make a big deal of it now, but you got to think about it at the time where you know this was probably taken as a, uh, uh, a an inebriated young lady uh, who probably ran away to avoid a, uh, a, a drunk driving um, charge. So that's what was in their head. And I'm just wondering how many times this towing mix-up happens. This could be something that has happened several times in the past. So I'm kind of putting it out there. Uh, it's something that we have to find out. But if Michael Lavoy is... I, I agree, yes, that's something we need to find out. But if Mike Lavoy, you know, worked all last week and it's Monday, the first day of the week that you're supposed to be sitting on your couch, don't you know you should be sitting on your couch? I don't understand. That's a good point. I don't know. And an, another good point that John raises is it hasn't been confirmed who called him because it wasn't an official call from dispatch. Another weird thing is that we we just came across is that th- this is what this form is, is for here. This poster here is the whole report. It, it goes from uh, 6.02 p.m. until 12.59, okay, that night. So in that timeline... There are four calls that are missing. They're not redacted. They're missing. Okay? Three of those calls are between the 602 and 749. Is that convenient? Because it's right between the time that Mora went missing. So that's very, very convenient that those four calls are missing. The last call that's missing is down here after 11.03 p.m. And the convenience of the time that those three calls are missing is the 6 to 8 o'clock. And Moore's accident, we believe, happened at 7.05 per scanner calls that were heard by what I have is, is at least two or three witnesses now who have stated that they heard that car, that the car had slid off the road on Swiftwater Road and then that the, that the person had left in the private vehicle. To, the, to me, that means somebody had slid off the road and got back in their car. They and got that it was a female. And that it was a female. Fem- yeah, that it yes. was a female that and went off the female. road. KF, uh, welcome back to the podcast. So this is something that you've looked into, right, KF? These uh, redacted or these missing uh, phone calls the, from the record of the, uh, the police dispatch? Yes. So I was obviously curious about these missing calls. Um, I was able to look through all of the records that have been released under freedom of information. And I did find that those four calls were in fact missing, um, as far as we could tell with how the calls were numbered. Um, now I figured there was probably a wealth of reasons why calls might be missing, but I figured why not just ask? So I, um, I contacted the, um, agency that had initially released the call logs, 
and asked them specifically about those four calls. And I provided the call numbers. Um, their advice to me was to contact the agencies that those calls were um, handled by. So the police department that handled each call. What I then explained to them is that these were calls that were missing from a log that had been released to Fred Murray. And I sent a copy of the original document from the Bureau of Emergency Services stating that they were releasing the log in its entirety. And I explained that these were four calls that were missing and I didn't know what departments they went to because they weren't included. So they were kind enough to go through their records and actually find those four calls for me and send me back an explanation of why those calls wouldn't have been included. So their explanation was that what happens um, when an emergency occurs is that sometimes multiple people will call and those calls will get routed separately and then merge together um, to be about the same case. So that's what will happen when a call is missing from a log like this one. Um, These calls were about incidents that other calls also came in about and they were merged with those other call numbers in other districts. They sent me back the calls with the um, with the actual call time and then which which incident it was actually related to. The first call had no data Um, And they explained that that was likely because it was merged with a call about another incident. Um, The second call, um, 4747, occurred at 6.38 p.m. And it was about a structure fire reported in Bradford, Vermont. Um, The third call, 4755, actually occurred at 8 p.m. and was a medical emergency in Newbury, Vermont. And then the last call, 4767, actually occurred at 9.12 p.m. and was about a domestic disturbance in Campton, New Hampshire. Um, So again, these were just incidents that multiple calls had come in about, and that's why they were merged, and that's why the calls were missing from this original file. Any chance any of them have to do with Maura Murray? The last three, I would say no. Um, I mean, the middle two occurred in Vermont, and the last one um, was a domestic disturbance, which, looking at the record, it seems pretty cut cut and dry. But the first call, I mean, I don't know. It's There's no data. It was merged with another call. Looking at the log that we have, it's possible that that call was merged with the call about the um, accident in the Walmart parking lot, um, which two pe- apparently two people had a fender bender in the Walmart parking lot. And by the time police arrived, the Walmart employees informed them that the people had exchanged insurance information and that um, there was no need for police president- presence. And so they left. Um, I've never, I have not been able to determine who those drivers were involved in that Walmart fender bender, but my best guess is that it's unrelated to Mora. John Smith says that the uh, the timing would work out pretty well if you left uh, there, that Walmart parking lot, and uh, ended up at Mora's accident site. That is what uh, he told me today, actually. It's definitely possible because there's no data in the system. I can't rule it out. I can't say that it has nothing to do with it. Um, Again, it happened between 6.02 and 6.08, so we're talking at least an hour before the car accident with the Saturn um, in Haverhill. So. It's just another example of the uh, nylon sock theory that I have, that it's like you, you, can't, you, can't, even, you can't even get the you, – you busted your ass to get this information, and you get the information. It seems like it's an answer. We put it all together, and then – John Smith brings up, well, the timing between this fender bender, which could have caused the damage on Moore's car, is pretty close to her doing that in the Walmart parking lot and then being at the accident site later on. It's like just when you think that you've finally put something behind you, 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 you bust ass and you get the information and you say, okay, we can scratch this one off. 
It's like, well, can we really? Because that could happen. Now you have to go and and look for, you know, was there surveillance tapes of this accident? Like, are we going to start looking at insurance records of, you know, I mean, what what can, can we just get out of this like nylon sock? The insurance records is something that John Smith and I talked about uh, maybe trying to take a look at. But he mentioned that if Mora bumped into somebody's, uh, say, trailer hitch or, or a truck's uh, bumper, which is what he believes the damage is uh, a result of, um, then he Mora's car wouldn't have caused any damage to that truck, likely. And so no report ever would have been filed anyway. Right. Well, and here's the other side of the many-sided coin is that she could have been involved in the fender bender in the Walmart parking lot. And that person wasn't, didn't live locally, never reported it, and it has nothing to do with why she disappeared. And that's obviously a much better chance than it was Mora. But the damage isn't, isn't consistent with what the police report says. So the damage happened somewhere and, uh, and her car stopped working at some point you know, is, you know, if the damage didn't happen right there, so... Would airbags have gone off in a parking lot fender bender? I mean, was she going... How fast could anyone possibly be going in a in a parking lot? You know what? It's really... I've done a lot of reading about what would and wouldn't set, air, set airbags off, and it... There are those perfect storm situations where the airbags really shouldn't have gone off based on the the weight and the speed and all of those things, and sometimes they still do. So I think it's really hard to say exactly this is impossible that her airbags went off in this fender bender because she was going X amount of miles per hour. Um, I think it seems just as likely to go off in a fender bender as it does hitting a snowbank. Well, thank you very much, KF, for uh, coming on and clearing that up uh, for us and for the listening audience. Yeah, of course. I don't know if I'm going to go ahead and say it's cleared up, but thank you for coming on and at least um, showing the work that's done on, on your end for this. And the information is there beyond just saying that these phone records were redacted. Yep, sometimes you just have to ask. So we wanted to bring on KF to uh, hear from her what it was like for her to visit the accident site for the first time and then she also took her own uh trip alone up there so two experiences in haverhill kf what was it like what did you think i mean i think going up there for the anniversary was a, a bit of a whirlwind um we got there and we were kind of doing the memorial at the scene of the accident and it was just very surreal for me to see it in person for the first time um, which I expect is the experience of most people that follow this case and then eventually end up making their way up there. I mean, I heard about this case a long time ago, but have really been invested in it for a shorter time. Um, but I think it's kind of like visiting a, a place that you've seen in a movie or visiting a, a landmark that you've heard about your whole life and you've seen so many times. It's, it's a surreal and strange experience. What do you think of the locals? I thought the locals were great. I think I was impressed to see how interested some of them are and how involved they are in trying to keep this story alive. I I think that a lot of the locals up there from what we've heard and seen are tired of hearing about this. And on one hand, I totally understand that. They want to go on with their lives. They want to move forward. But on the other hand, more is still missing. And so how can we how can we just forget about that? And how can we, how can we just move on with our lives and and not think about that and not try to keep that story alive until she's found or until this is somehow solved. Now, I know that we kind of rushed up there uh, to the scene, 
we um, got there right uh, pretty much at the same time. We we traveled up separately uh, from Tim, and uh, uh, I got there like five minutes before you did. Yeah, I mean it was pretty much at the same time when we pulled up to the corner by the weathered barn uh was uh did you get like any sense of like what was your feeling when we pulled up to the corner and i know there was a lot of people around there but you see the uh haverhill police department there uh making sure that the traffic was under control what was your feeling as we as we approached the the accident scene something that you've been invested in emotionally for for so long what was uh what was the feeling when you first saw it it didn't even like really register for me that we were there and that we were like at the actual spot um, until we were standing out there and John started talking. I think that was the first time for me when I kind of had a moment to take a deep breath and actually look around and see, Oh, there's a group of people. There's a large group of people here. I think I, I wasn't expecting there to be as many people as there were. And I was expecting to recognize more of the people there or at least know who they were from the online community. And instead it was, almost all locals other than us. I like that answer because uh, I was expecting, and I think the audience was expecting you to say that it was a very surreal moment and you drove up and you just like watched with emotion. Um, But I think that that speaks volumes to um, just how uh, professional you are in, you know, the investigation and helping out is that you had, you had, um, you had priorities that were a little bit greater than taking in the, uh, the novelty of the whole thing. I was obviously interested in being a part of it, but I really wanted to preserve it for the listeners. I thought that that was, that was the real reason why we went. I mean, it's great that the three of us were able to be there, but at the same time, we have this community of people that are listening and care, and most of them just don't have the ability to show up in New Hampshire on a random weekday. And I really wanted us to capture as authentically as we could what was happening up there and what the feeling was and really what the purpose of people meeting up there was. What did you feel the purpose uh, was of people meeting up there? What did it feel like? What did it seem like? We know John and we talked to him. So a lot of the things that he said up there weren't new. But I think there is this push. And that's what I really felt on that day with John's speech at the site. And, and later on, there's this push to remind people that we're not going away. And that the people that want to know what happened to Mora, the people that knew her in her life, her friends, her family, that this community of people that are searching that we're not giving up just because it's been 12 years that that doesn't mean, okay, you know, we fold. That's it. If anything, we're, we're here more than we were before. And I think we're here to stay. And so that was, that was what I really felt like it was about um, was kind of making a stand up there and showing even those people in Haverhill that aren't as open to continuing to talk about what happened 12 years ago to really show those people that there there's a community out there that cares and that, is determined to find out what happened to Mora and that we're not going away. What about any darkness up there? I know you went up there by yourself as well. Lance and I spoke in the beginning of this episode about how there's sort of an eerie feeling over the the whole uh, mountainous area, at least the parts that I've explored. Obviously, that's a lot to do with the experiences we've had up there recently, but can you speak to that at all? Going up there for the anniversary... It was the morning. There were a lot of people there. For me, I I didn't really get any. I didn't get any feelings or or weird. I didn't tap into anything strange at the accident site. Um, Going up there by myself was a very different experience, partially because obviously Maura was up there by herself. Um, But also, I I really started to kind of feel 
more of those things that you guys had talked about that it's just it's a strange pl- place there's just something in the air i don't i don't even know how to explain it it sounds very strange and and anyone who is listening should know that i am not someone who buys into paranormal investigation of any kind i'm not someone that whether it is true or exists or anything um i think that's for other people to to search out and figure out i'm just not really interested so um, I'm not someone who necessarily buys into that. I don't seek it out. So for me to go to a place and have any sort of strange feeling or vibe about that place is highly unusual, highly unusual. So, um, and I think part of it's the story. I think if I went up there without having any clue what had happened there, maybe I wouldn't feel the same, but I did end up stuck on 112 by myself in a blinding snowstorm. And it was really terrifying it was really scary and um it's just a it's a haunting place you're just driving between these mountains and just endless trees and it's dark and you don't see another car or a house for 30 minutes and I just don't live in a place that's like that so I think it's it's spooky we were talking right before we started rolling about how um I was watching the the trailer that's about that we're about to release. And uh, there's this great shot uh, that our DP Josh got, and uh, it, it pans up from the road to the mountain, and it's just this, like, straight line, this straight wall, like, up, and it's huge, a huge mountain. You're driving straight towards it. I just wonder if there's something to do with the mountains or just mountainous region that makes, that, that gives you, an, a, like, a sort of an anxious feeling. So when you're going up there and you're on 93 North uh, and you come around that bend, that's honestly one of my favorite uh, sections of road. Uh, I don't know, in New England maybe. Um, You're coming into the notch, you're coming into Cannon Mountain, and you're getting all sorts of really, really nice views, really pretty views, uh, gorgeous stuff on either side of you. And, I mean, there is this feeling, though, when when you get into the towns there, and you're in between the mountains and you're surrounded by this forest, this like vast, dense forest, especially sure any time of the year. But in in winter, it's like these forests kind of have a soul. The woods kind of have a soul up there. They're old, they're deep and they're dense. And in the winter, when you go out there, they're cold and you can hear things out there that you don't normally hear when it's humid. Um, you hear uh you hear trees rubbing up against each other, and that creates a, a sort of vibration or a sort of a ringing sound. Um, you hear popping. You hear uh, crunching in the snow. There just seems to be something when you're in the middle of all that that would suggest that these forests are alive. And you're not talking about something that's been there only maybe a decade. You're talking about this forest like hundreds of years. Though there there are things that have, that, that have happened in forests like this that will never – we that happened hundreds of years ago that, that we'll never know for, you know, for, for our lifetime. And if you're just in there and you're thinking about these things that builds to the whole uh, aura of, of everything up there too. This area, it's ancient as far as we can, you know, conceive time. And I think that's maybe what, what I identify when I have those weird feelings or those vibes is it's this ancient, maybe this kind of sacred place in nature. And I'm not always sure if I'm welcome there. (laughs) <laughs> like, I think that's the, the feeling that I'm getting when I'm up there and you just, you see the way that kind of we've tried to build homes and build roads and all these stuff, but somehow just, I don't know, nature just takes back over and a place like the, like the White Mountains is just so wild still that um, I think you really see that. You really see the power of that nature of those mountains, of those trees. And I think that's part of what instills 
kind of that healthy fear in us and in me when I go up there is like, this is a dangerous place for me to be. And especially when I was up there by myself. Yeah, it's that healthy fear, but it's that um, you really get in touch with that sense of mortality. Uh, not to go off on a tangent here, but there's the, the symbol of New Hampshire was the old man in the mountain. And a few years ago, well, for for you know several years, they knew that the old man in the mountain was was slipping off. So we're talking about something that's granite, and it was a it was a human face. And when you go up there, you have the Indian head. You have uh, look this one up, the Watcher. It's all these stone um, natural creations on either the the side of a mountain or in the face of a mountain. Uh, and you can look up, and it, it looks like everything's watching you, and you get the sense of mortality. And I think that really that really hit home when when the old man of the mountain slipped off uh, of that face, and um, and it's, he's not there anymore. So really, it was like a devastating moment for people up there. But you're talking about that mortality, and you're talking about how nature will take over, and you know, nature shook shook the old man of the mountain off. You know, and it was that's, that was something that had been there for you know since before any of us had ever thought to start exploring and and driving uh, highways through there. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.